Thank you, choir. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of John chapter 4. John chapter 4 and hold your spot there, uh, if you will. And uh, we're going to continue in the series we started a few weeks ago uh, entitled Nuts and Bolts. And what we're doing in the series is uh, taking a look at those essential elements of the Christian life, things that have to be in place for us to be able to, uh, to have a close, effective walk with Christ. Now, I have to ask a question. How many of you today uh, received your 3D glasses when you came in? Any of you? Any of you get those? They would be really helpful with the screen um, this morning. You may have noticed that. It looks like we've got a 3D thing going. Adam came in this morning and cranked everything up, uh, only to find that uh, we were having some issues with the old projector. And, uh, and so it looks like a 3D thing today, but it will not deter what we're doing this morning. So uh, we're really excited about this message today and uh, in this series, Nuts and Bolts. So we're looking at the, the effective uh, Christian life, what it looks like, what elements are necessary for that to occur in our lives. And this morning, we're looking at the specific element of worship in a message titled, Treat Him Like a King. Treat Him Like a King. So this was Valentine's Week this week, just two days ago, uh, celebrated Valentine's Day. And uh, I got an email in my inbox through the course of, I guess it was the week prior, about a special event for a Valentine's dinner, a specific special Valentine's dinner. And I thought, you know what? I am all over this. It was from Chick-fil-A. And, uh, and so I hit the button to reserve my two free tickets through uh, Chick-fil-A, figuring Susie would probably not be as excited about that as I was, and that Hannah and Drew were probably a little bit too old for an exciting Valentine's dinner with Dad at Chick-fil-A. I figured I would be safe if I invited my nine-year-old daughter, April, to join me on the special sweetheart dinner at Chick-fil-A this past Tuesday night. Now, when they advertised it, it was, it was just so exciting. I mean, I, I, um, and the night really was exciting. It, it was all that. And so uh, I clicked my, you know, the button there, and I got two. It went through Eventbrite, which is uh, uh, like an event planning thing. So I got my confirmation, two tickets, free tickets, by the way for the sweetheart dinner at Chick-fil-A. And so uh, April was so excited. That, that day, I took her to school that morning, and, um, and, and she said she was excited because of something else going on that day. And she said, and then we get to go to dinner tonight. And I was like, yes, dad of the year. And, uh, and so I picked her, or rather, we, uh, I came home from, from work a little bit early, and we had signed up for the five to six o'clock time slot. And so we went flying over there to Chick-fil-A, got there early, and, uh, and we went in there, and man, it was just awesome. Any of you do the sweetheart dinner, by the way, this year? We had a few in the nine o'clock. Anybody? Wow, just us. And so we had a lot of fun without you. And, uh, and so we walk in, and uh, they, they had the place all done up. They had these fancy tablecloths that were laid out on the tables, the kinds where you can color on them, right? They're, they're sort of like paper, but they're tablecloths. And so they had those laid out. Had my name on there, Brooks Kale, two right? We'll placard there. And uh, so we sit down at our assigned table and we immediately get our crayons and we started coloring and, and uh, she colored and I colored and we were doing all kind of fun coloring stuff. They had little hearts on the table. They had a violin player. Are you kidding me? They had a, a real honest, that kind of violin player, literal living, breathing violin guy there playing the violin at Chick-fil-A. And so we're just having a blast. And then the lady comes to our, it gets better, she comes to our table to take our order. They don't do this at Chick-fil-A. They don't do this. And so she comes to the table to take our order. And uh, man, I, I, April, what do you want? She, she wanted, I think, root beer. I got sweet tea. And uh, they brought our drinks. And she comes back again. Hey, what would you like to eat? April, what do you want, honey? I, I'll take a number one. 
moment of silence. And uh, number one is just great there at Chick-fil-A. And so, so she ordered that, number one. And I, I said, you know what? I think I'll have a number one too with fries. And I said, and I looked up at the waitress, and this was the pivotal moment of the whole night. I said, can I also get some mac and cheese? Did you know? Chick-fil-A serves mac and cheese. And uh, oh man, it is really, really good stuff. And she said, yeah, you can get mac and cheese. I was like, score. Yes. So give me the mac and cheese. And then the thought occurred to me because I had my free tickets and they scanned that when we got there. I said, it's all free, right? (laughs) She she kind of did what you just did. And she said, no, you got to pay for it. I said, well, cancel the mac and cheese. So I canceled the mac and cheese. I mean, come on, the ticket said free. I thought this was a whole free, I really did. I thought it was a whole free event. And I grabbed up April, leave the crayon, break them and let's go. No, I didn't really, I didn't really go that far. But it, I thought, the, I literally thought the whole thing was free. I thought I was going to order like 10 pounds of food out of this place and get it all and only find out that, that I had to pay for it. So here's the thing, later in the week when I was putting together this message for this morning, I kind of thought about that. And believe it or not, it, it's sort of, at least for me, uh, in my mind, it fit into sort of like worship. And, and one of the elements that came out of that that I thought about later was, you know what, it feels good to be treated like a king. I mean, that really was just a cool night. It, it, was, it was a little bit over the top from a Chick-fil-A. I mean, I know it's Christian chicken and everything, but it was like way over the top. And it, it was just really a cool night. And it feels good to be treated like a king. You know what that's like. Because you may go on a cruise, or you've got that special restaurant where you like to go at certain times of the year, or you've got your little thing, whatever it may is, where, where, whatever it is, where you go and they treat you like a king, or they treat you like a queen, and you love it, and, and, and it just means something to you, and it feels good to be treated like a king. And I thought later in the week, I thought, you know what, God probably enjoys being treated like the king that he is. Because he is a king. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And it says that in Scripture, Second Timothy in the book of Revelation. And you see in the Old Testament how he's treated. And no, we don't worship any other person. That he is the one true living king. And I'm sure that for God, when his people treat him like the king that he is, when we worship him, that probably carries some significance to God. He wants that. And we're going to see that in just a few moments. But there was a second takeaway from that night when I went away. It dawned on me later that, uh, that there are limitations to this thing when it comes to being treated like a king, it, 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 at least at Chick-fil-A. I mean, you got to pay for the mac and cheese. You're not just going to get up in there and get mac and cheese and then not pay for it. you got to pay for it. And I thought about our worship, that even though we come to this place on Sundays and we worship God and we sing songs and whatever your worship may look like, we engage in that. But even there, listen, so many times we put limitations, don't we, to our worship. And we ascribe our own definition of what worship should look like. And it's almost like along with that, we put God in this little box and we put worship in this little box and it has to look the way we think it should look. And there are denominations that have their view of worship and we, and we begin to have some real questions that we, we begin to grapple with. One of those questions may be, so can we really worship God the same way outside of Sundays as we do inside of Sundays? And we grapple with questions of, is it really worship if it doesn't involve music or if it doesn't involve singing or if it doesn't involve a choir? What about the person who's introverted? 
right, who doesn't like a lot of attention to themselves. The extroverts, right, they, they engage in worship, right, their view of it in, in, in real expressive ways. I mean, you got the one hand, you got the two hand, you got the sway, right, you got to go, and they kind of got that example of worship. But what about the introvert who isn't sort of that upfront person? Can they worship in the same way that the expressive person can? Can both of those be considered worship? And then we've got all kind of denominations, right, that, that say this is what worship looks like, and Man, if you don't worship this way or if you don't demonstrate this particular spiritual gift, then it's not real worship. And others say, no, you're way over the top. You're just emotional. That's not really worth it. you got all these different moving targets of what worship really is. What we find, though, is in the book of John that Jesus, in a very unlikely place with a really unlikely person, chose that time and that place to give us a perfect definition of what real genuine worship is. And we're going to find it right here in the book of John, chapter 4. So let me, let me give you a little background in the book of John, chapter 4. Here in this context, in this chapter, what we're going to find it's a lengthy chapter. We're going to deal with a little snippet of it. But in this particular context in John, chapter 4, Jesus is passing through a region called Samaria. Now, here's the 32nd. Let's catch up on what Samaria is all about. In, in John, chapter 4, when we're in, uh, introduced to the Samaritans, we sort of have to jump back to Old Testament history for a second. And when we jump back to Old Testament history, what we find is you've got God's chosen people, the people of Israel, the Jewish people, and then they would be taken off into exile because of their sin and their refusal to repent and come back to God. And while they're in exile through the years, what would happen would be during that exile, but especially following that exile over a period of time, the Jewish people would intermarry with those who were Gentile. They were not Jewish, and the children they would bear ultimately would be partly Jewish and partly not. And, and it would be a brand new uh, people group, almost in a sense, called the Samaritans. Well, over time, there would be huge hostility between the Israelites and the people of Samaria to the point to where you wouldn't even eat off the same dish that one of the others had eaten off of. Didn't matter if it had been cleaned, you just didn't eat off of it. If a Samaritan used it, the Jew would say, uh-uh, no way, and vice versa. And so when Jesus comes along, there's this giant divide between the Israelites and the Samaritans. Well, in John chapter 4, at the very front end of that passage, what it tells us is that Jesus is traveling from point A to point B, and it says that he had to go to, or he had to go through Samaria. And this was cool because I believe every word in the Bible is inspired. It's there for a reason. And when it says that Jesus had to go through Samaria, I think the reason for that was because the people of Samaria were just as important to God as the people of Israel were important to God. This really shakes up a lot of the, 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 the uh, issues in our culture today that are centered around racial inequality, right? Where if one race thinks they're better than another, well, you know what? Jesus didn't feel that way because he saw the people of Samaria worthy of his death on the cross, and he was willing to go through their land to get their, the message of the gospel to them. And so he finds himself here in John 4, the human side of him is tired, right? Remember Jesus, 100% God, 100% man. The 100% man part of him is 100% worn out right here in John 4. And he sits down beside a well. It's the middle of the day, and there's going to be a woman that's going to show up, and she has a history of poor decisions. And she's going looking for fulfillment in her life from relationship after relationship after relationship. And every time she heard a door slam behind her, it was her heart and her dreams being crushed all over again. 
And she's come to this well in the middle of the day. You didn't come in the middle of the day. But it's a lot easier when you're the talk of the town to come in the middle of the day when nobody else is going to be there to look you up one side down the other and talk about you behind your back. So she comes in the middle of the day. She's got a water jug with her. She's come to this well to draw water, and there's Jesus there. And they begin a conversation. Jesus begins to bring her sin to the forefront so that she can deal with it and leave it behind. It was an act of grace. You know, when he puts his finger on sin in our lives, it's not because he wants to drag our nose through it again. It's because he wants to deal with it so that we can leave it there and move on and enjoy him for who he is. And so he's having this conversation. And the tables turn to the topic of worship. And what happens next would have gigantic implications for this woman and equally as gigantic implications for us 2,000 years later when we look at the topic of worship. And so let's jump in here. John chapter 4, let's begin in verse 20, looking at this message titled, Treat Him Like a King. So in the midst of the conversation, the woman responds to Jesus They're talking about worship here, and her response is, well, our fathers worshiped in this mountain. Remember, they're in Samaria. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people, the Jewish people, say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. When she said our fathers, she's talking about her Samaritan forefathers. The Samaritans had set up this kind of a rival, not in a sense of we want to be better than you necessarily, but it was their own personal place of worship, their own personal uh, location for worship. is on a place called Mount Gerizim. It was obviously apart from the, the temple uh, and the place of worship in Jerusalem. And so they had set up this rival place of worship, and the woman says, so our fathers worshiped in this mountain, on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, right here in Samaria, where where they built this, this place of worship, this temple. This is where we worship, but you people, she says to Jesus, who would obviously, in his appearance, I'm sure, been very Jewish, she says, you people, the Jewish people... You say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. So, so it's almost as though she's saying, I'm confused here. So what is worship? How does it take place? And how is it lived out? Here's the thing. It, she has this mentality that, that worship is location-centric, that you have to be in a certain place at a certain time to be able to engage in worship. Jesus is abl- about to blow that completely out of the water. Look at what he says next in verse 21. The following verse, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. In other words, worship is not a place that only happens in a location. It's not location-centric. You cannot only worship on Sundays when you're at church. You have the same exact amount of capacity, the same opportunity to worship on a Tuesday morning or a Thursday night or any other day of the week when you are somewhere else as you do here in this place from 9 to noon on a Sunday morning. Worship, he says, is not location-centric. You don't have to be in the temple. He goes on in the next verse. And he adds to that statement. He says, you worship, you as Samaritans worship What you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. And here's where he's beginning to connect the dots to himself. He's about to sort of pull the curtain back and reveal to her who he is, that he's the Messiah. He's the one they've been waiting on. A Samaritan would have understood the concept of the Messiah who would come. 
Jesus is saying, it's not about worshiping in a location. He says, in fact, it's from the Jewish people through salvation in a relationship with God that a person is able to worship even in the first place. Verse 23, he begins to tighten down on these nuts and bolts just a little bit tighter. He says, but an hour is coming, and it now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Man, I'll tell you, I've been, I've been a follower of Jesus for a long time. I've been um, in ministry for a long time. I never noticed that phrase that I highlighted at the very end of that passage, the Father seeks, never noticed it there before. It never stood out to me to catch my attention until putting this message together. What an amazing thought it is, right, that God is looking for people. He is seeking for people with a heart of authentic, genuine worship of he himself. That's what he's looking for. And it's almost like if he shows up in this place on a Sunday, he shows up looking for people who are going to worship him according to his parameters, in his way, according to his specific definition. And Jesus lays that out in the next verse. Look at what he says in verse 24. He describes worship here. He says, for God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. God is spirit, and those who worship him, hear the parameters, hear the tracks that we have to run on when we look at worship, they must worship him in spirit and in truth. There has to be that element of worship in spirit and that element of worshiping him in truth. Both of those working together keep things balanced, keep, those, keep worship in a place that honors and that moves the very heart of God. When he talks about worship there, it's a Greek word, proskuneo, which, which literally means what you think it means. It means to, to treat one as completely superior. It means to bow down before it. I don't think it's meaning just a physical posture of literally bowing down, even though you see that in Scripture, and even though that is certainly, uh, certainly uh, allowed today for us to bow down before God. There's certainly nothing wrong with that, but I think the, the posture here that Jesus is speaking of more is a posture of the heart, that we surrender to him, we bow down before him. That's what worship is. He says we worship him in spirit. That's that inside element, that, that inner component to our worship where it's an attitude of surrender and servanthood before him. That's what fuels our worship. So when you think of worship, follow me on this. When you think about worship, there are some non-negotiables that have to be in place, right? Some non-negotiables that have to be present. One of those is that we're in a relationship with Jesus to begin with. I mean, we have to be in a relationship with Christ. It's not worship. If, if we don't have a relationship with Christ where we have bowed our knee before him, bowed our heart before him, come to him in repentance and faith and trust in what he's done on the cross, we're not even capable of worshiping God at that point if we don't first have a relationship with him. It, it would almost be a mockery to say to God, you know what, I'm not going to come to you in surrender to trust your son Jesus. I'm not going to yield to him and I'm not going to bow my life before him and turn from my sin and trust in him. I'm not going to do that, but man, I really like this song, so I'm going to worship you here, and I hope this makes a, makes a difference. I mean, I think God's going to say, no, the starting point is that you yield your life first, and then you come worship. <laughs> I mean, one of those non-negotiables is that we have to be in relationship with Him. I think another non-negotiable is that we, we're in close fellowship with Him. David said in Psalm 32, when I tried to hide my sin, man, my, my, my heart groaned. I mean, I was, I was miserable. 
But when I came clean before you, I mean, David would paint this beautiful picture of how everything changed when he came clean before God. And man, for us as believers, I think if there are times in our lives, Scripture would seem to indicate where we're, we're holding on to sin, unconfessed sin. There are elements of our life that we have a stranglehold on. And we say, man, this part of my life belongs to me. This corner of my life is mine. Oh, but God, you can have all the other corners and I'm going to worship you there. I don't think that's what God's looking for. He wants us to come clean before him, worship him in authenticity. It doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. If we wait until we're perfect before we ever worship God, we're never going to worship Him. God's not saying, wait until you're perfect and then worship me. I think what God's looking for is that the best we can, we come before Him and our hearts are open and our hearts are yielded and we desire, we long for fellowship with Him and He meets us there. <laughs> he meets us there and He hears that worship and He receives that worship. But He wants us to be surrendered. Look at what Paul writes in Romans 12. You don't have to turn there. Look on the overhead, Romans 12 Verse 1, he says, I urge you, brethren, Paul writes, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living and as a holy sacrifice acceptable to God. This is your spiritual service of worship. Yield yourself, surrender yourself. Paul would say, as a living sacrifice. We put ourselves up on the altar. The problem with living sacrifices, dead sacrifices don't do this. Living sacrifices have a really hard time staying on the altar where they were put. <laughs> they just crawl right back down again. I think what we see in our own lives is there are times in our lives where we say, Lord, I am all yours, and I lay myself before you. As a follower of Jesus, I yield myself. I come back up on that altar, and I sacrifice myself again to you. But then over time, it's like we chase after something different. We yield away from him and yield to the world, or we replace him with something else that's of lesser value. God says, come back, reoffer yourself as a living, as a holy sacrifice. And as we do that, it doesn't mean, again, we wait for perfection. But there in that place where we're yielded and we're surrendered, we're saying, God, I trust you. God, you are the highest and most. You, you are the greatest. You're the only one worthy of my worship. I want to treat you like a king. And it's there that we worship him. And Jesus said, if we're going to worship the Father, we treasure him above all. We worship him in spirit. Man, in the deepest part of our hearts, he, he is our treasure. We choose to treasure him in that moment. And it's in that moment that we worship him. But he said also, we worship him in truth. It's not just about emotionalism. It's not just about uh, doing things on the outside that appear to be worship. God sees the heart. But it means that when we worship, we worship Him in accordance with His Word. There are certain beliefs and certain strains of, uh, of religion today, certain churches in existence where they do the most outlandish uh, things that you never see ever demonstrated in Scripture under the guise of worship. And, and it, it's just it, it calling it revival. And it, There's nothing in Scripture that ever bears witness to what's being done, barking like animals and all kinds of crazy stuff that, that, that is generated by man almost forgetting the fact that Jesus said, no, we worship in line with his word. Right? You've heard the statement before. I'm sure none of us have ever said it, but we've heard the statement, well, you know, I don't go to church because I can worship God on a golf course as well as I can worship him anywhere. Totally true. <laughs> that's totally true. I mean, I can't stand up here and say that that's a lie. I mean, you can. I can't. I can, I can worship God on a golf course. How hard could that be? Psalm 19, the heavens declare the works of his hands. That looking at nature, looking at creation proves there's a creator. How could we miss this? 
I mean, you could definitely worship God. However, if we're going to worship Him in spirit, yes, that's easy, easy to do on a golf course. But Hebrews chapter 10 also tells us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, that as believers we are called out, we are unique, we are God's chosen. He calls us into this place. It's not the only time we worship, not the only place we worship, but there's a time when, when the saints gather, the church gathers, and we come together, and God says, don't forsake that, don't neglect that, come together. And when you do, that's in that place where we worship with a common uh, relationship with Christ. If we're only worshiping God out there on the golf course to the neglect of coming together with the saints the way he calls us to on the Lord's day, that's not worshiping him in truth. It's worshiping Him in our own way, in our own little system. And honestly, it's probably just a good excuse to lay out from the accountability that comes whenever we're assembled with the people of God. So we worship Him in spirit, and we worship Him in truth. And when we do that, there are going to be times it, that's just going to look different for you than it does for the person over here and different for me. But as long, man, as long as it's in spirit and it's authentic and it's from the heart and it's in line with truth and it's not contradictory of what God speaks of in Scripture, I think God would say, just bring it. Just bring it. You know, her, her life, this woman in John 4, her life would be changed that day. She would go away from that place. She would go away from that place as a brand new person because she'd met the Messiah. And I think that was the first day, probably, of many days, I would speculate, where her heart would engage in genuine, authentic worship, having met the Savior that made everything new. The mess she'd made, the wreck she had created, she had met a Savior who would fix all of that for her. I don't think she was ever the same. There's a simple principle, I think, that comes out of this for us to help us to apply what Jesus says in John 4, 24. And the principle is this. I think it's a good definition that worship, when we think of what worship is, worship is simply a, resp a personal response from our heart. There's that element where we worship in spirit. It's a personal response from our heart directed to God. We don't worship any other. God's not, he's not up for any rivals. We worship only him. It's a response from our heart directed to him personally and always in line with his word. Always in line with his word. And that can raise the roof or that can be in the most quiet moment that you could ever imagine, tucked away from the world. It can be in a place that's more public than any or it can be in a place that is so incredibly isolated. And the person in the band and in the choir can worship in spirit and truth in a way that moves the heart, but no more so than the prisoner locked up in a cell for the crimes he's committed, but has been forgiven by a Messiah who set him free. Both can worship equally in spirit and truth in a way that moves the heart of God. Let's say for a moment, I'm going to go a little contradictory to my message for a moment. 
and go theologically inaccurate for just a second in this illustration. So show me a little grace, grace and truth. But let's imagine for a moment that there are aliens in outer space. That's the theologically inaccurate portion of the message. And they look down on your life. And this visitor from outer space looks down, not knowing you, only by what they observe. And their observation period is not just a Sunday morning from 1045 to noon. They've just observed you over the course of your life for X amount of days. And as they examine your life, they only know what they've seen. And based on what they see that you're surrendered to, based on what they see that you treat as superior, primary, based on what they see you sacrifice for, and based on what they see you pattern your life after, what would they conclude then is your object of worship? Because everybody worships something. For those who don't know you that only observe you for the first time based on what they see and based on what they hear, what would they say is your object of worship? When no one's looking, no one else is around, when there's no platform, when there's no church seat, based on what you sacrifice for, based on what you surrender to, based on what you value and treasure, what is your object of worship? Would it be a career? Would it be a relationship? Would it be a status? Or would it be a king? The only one true living king who stands ready and willing to receive all worship in spirit and in truth when we treat him like the king that he is. If you don't know him, he stands ready to accept you too. If you'll only turn from that sin and surrender your life to him. Let's pray. God, you, you are our king. You're the king of kings and the Lord of lords, Scripture tells us. All other kings, lowercase k, fall short of you, the one true living king, the creator, the one who loved us so greatly, God, that you proved that love when you came in the person of Jesus and died in our place and rose again. Lord, you're, you're, the, you're the God of the universe, and yet you take notice of us. Lord, you know everything about us. There's not one of us who have come into this place this morning that can keep one area of our life hidden from you. Though we would hope you don't see certain areas of our lives, God, you see it all and you love us so greatly. And that love is not a conditional love. I'll love you if, if you only get that area cleaned up, if you only stop doing that, if you only start straightening up in that other area, that's not that kind of a love. Your love is a love that is unconditional. It says, I love you no matter, no matter what. It's without condition. It's without limitation. But God, we only know you in relationship when we come to you through your son, through Jesus, who died and rose for us. And all over this place today, there are people that have made that decision to lay down their sin and to give their lives to Christ. And Lord, your grace has covered them and washed their hearts clean. And it doesn't give an excuse to just go out and live however we want to live. Lord, it, it should do the exact opposite. It should drive us to live our life as a gift, as an offering to you, our King.
And God, when we worship, yes, there are times when we're disconnected. There are times when we're tired. There are times when we're worried and stressed. Lord, I, I have those times equally as much, if not more than anybody else. But God, what you're looking for at the end of the day is a heart that is just surrendered and open. That says, God, all I can bring is myself, but I bring me the best I can and surrender to you. And Lord, it's that worship in spirit and in truth that I think moves your heart. And so God, for us today who know you, God, help us to recognize and remember that that worship can happen tomorrow on the way to work. That worship can happen Tuesday night. That worship can happen Thursday afternoon over lunch. We don't have to wait to Sunday to have that. And God, for those here who don't know you, Lord, worship can start today beginning when they turn from their sin and bow their life, trusting in the person of Jesus to be Savior and Lord. Right where they sit today, they can invite you, Jesus, to come and forgive and take over. And so, God, thank you for accepting our worship as feeble as it is at times. Thank you for accepting our worship because you love us. Bless now the decisions we make knowing that these choices in and of themselves even, are an act of worship as we choose to follow you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray.